If you have your Bible this morning, please open up to Luke chapter 24. And normally, like with Pastor Joey, um, I preach through books of the Bible. And so when I don't, I get the opportunity to sort of uh, bring before you some of my favorite passages. Luke chapter 24 is one of my favorite passages because there we get to see the reality of the resurrection. Because whenever something supernatural sort of happens in history, it's very much discarded. But there we have a picture of Jesus coming before two of his followers, it seems like. And we get to see that he makes himself close. Through Luke chapter 24, not only do we see that, we, all, we also see how the Old Testament is an important aspect for each one of us to know. Because many look at the Bible and look at it that it's just a random selection of stories about this nation that formed Israel and that it's just stories and somehow Jesus came and he's going to come back again and it's just that. But the Bible is more than just a random set of stories. There is a central theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, that through over 40 writers, over a 1,500 year period, and God using um, God, his word to be written in three different languages, to have a unity that no other book could ever have. For there we get to see God choosing a people in which he wants to form a nation to be the signpost to all the other nations that there is a God that he wants to be close to his people and how they are to live. And how through those people he would bring the law so that they can see their lostness, that they could be able to turn to him and have salvation, but also that there would be one the promised one that would come and to set up the ultimate kingdom. And so all of that is knitted together through the Old Testament. And we get to see how God uses the Old Testament and the veracity of the Old Testament to lay down the foundation for the new. Because there are many in the evangelical church today that wants to sort of discard the Old Testament and say it really doesn't apply. We really shouldn't spend all too much time in it, that we should spend most of our time within the New Testament. But how that could be the furthest from the truth. And so Luke chapter 24, our Lord uses the Old Testament to lay down the veracity and to prove to two travelers that he is God, that he was the promised one, and that they can continue to put their faith upon him. And so we have here a, uh, a most beloved resurrection story that happened the day of that our Lord rose again from the dead. It's also a time to help prepare our hearts to partake at the Lord's table. And that's what we will do at the end. And so this is Luke's first account of a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. It's only mentioned here and not in the other three Gospels. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, Matthew, Mark, and John tells us that Jesus appeared before the women. But Luke makes his focal point of Christ's appearance here in Luke chapter 24. It's a story in great detail. It's a beautiful story. 
It's the most beloved story to most people who read it because it's rich in instructive. And so out of all of Dr. Luke's eyewitness accounts of those who he interviewed to write his, uh, his two letters, he chooses this one, a most obscured story, if you would, to really encapsulate what is going on in through these two people's hearts, but also probably in the hearts of the disciples and other followers of Jesus. And so here in Luke chapter 24, we find two people trying to make sense of the tragic situation that had just taken place. Within their hearts, there's probably a violent struggle going on, one between hope and the other one between fear. It's an intellectual struggle. It's an emotional struggle which is probably most common in most people's hearts because there's some time to where we have certain, uh, certain um, events in our life to where something tragic takes place and we try to make sense of it. We try to distill exactly what is going on. And so that happens to each one of us. Because each one of us, once we sort of graduate high school, we think our life is just going to pool together in a, in a very logical way. We think we're going to go to college. We think we're going to get a career. We're going to find someone to marry. We're going to begin to have children. And then we get to a place sometimes where we, we think it's just not enough. We want something else. That there is more meaning or fulfillment out there somewhere. And so we still can find ourselves bouncing between faith and fear and uncertainty. And so here, these two people that we will see can be really no different from each one of us. And so Dr. Luke, he gives us this story to show us that life does have meaning. It's found in Christ, the one who fulfilled all the promises that he was speaking about. And he will continue to fill the promises in the future for his people. So let me read the passage for you as we, as we begin to look at uh, five areas of this passage that I want us to focus in upon this morning. Look at verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. So remember, it's right after, it's the same day as the resurrection. So it's Resurrection Sunday. In the morning, the women, the empty tomb, all of that. And now it's later in the day. And behold, verse 13, two of them were going to that very, that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus approached them and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cloopus, answered and said to him, are you the only one in visiting Jerusalem and unaware of things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, in a very funny way, what things? 
And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when, when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were uh, going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, breaking it, and he began giving it to them. And then in verse 31, which is great, and then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Great passage of scripture. And we're going to be looking at this morning five areas of this passage that I want to focus in on to get an understanding of, of what is going on. And so in verses 13 and 14, we get to see the introduction of these travelers. We don't have a lot of information, but we have enough to begin to get an understanding. In verse 13, we see that, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And so it's Sunday, the morning in which Jesus rose from the dead, and it's later in the day, probably late afternoon, and they're traveling. Now Emmaus, as, as our passage says, is about seven miles from Jerusalem. We actually do not know the exact location, because when uh, Israel fell in 70 AD and pretty much Rome decimated the entire nation, including Jerusalem. It leveled Emmaus. And they haven't quite found it yet, but you never know. And so it was completely leveled, and we just know it's sort of northwest of Jerusalem. And there are two men, one of which we actually know their name. It's only listed here, but it's Cleopas. And the other one, we don't know their name. So my thought said, well, why does Luke just mention him and not the other guy? Well, it's probably because Dr. Luke, as he's compiling his two letters, 
actually spoke because he spoke to eyewitnesses, as we know as the beginning of each one of his letter sort of um, describes. He spoke to eyewitnesses, and so he probably spoke directly, so he uses his name to Cleopas. And so that's probably why he mentions him here. And so throughout our passage, we also get to see that they also knew the disciples and the women. And so somehow, either they were direct followers of Jesus or were very aware of those who were um, surrounding Jesus and were able to be in their company. And then we also know one last thing, is that somehow during the course of that day, Passover was over, they were going home. And because they left, as we shall see as this story unfolds, they only have a partial story to tell. They only knew the events that happened first thing in the morning, but they don't know what transpired since. And so um, they were required to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. They were probably there for a, um, a period of as long as a week. But this Passover was no normal Passover. It was no normal celebration. Because as soon as they um, ventured into Jerusalem, there was a buzz that was going on. This man named Jesus was in town. And not only that, the, uh, the rumor or the story that was spreading around town that he just raised somebody from the dead. And so, um, so there's a story, somebody from the dead, as Jesus enters the city, there's a great hoopla and celebration that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and there's a kingly celebration from all those who were there, and then he goes into the temple and cleanses the temple, and uh, he's, he, he's preaching once again in his final messages, and so there's a lot of buzz about this Jesus and the religious leaders, they're not happy the entire time. And so this was no normal Passover celebration. And so they're leaving Jerusalem to go, probably go back to their hometown, and they're talking in verse 14 to each other about the events that had taken place. So probably they weren't together during that time, but they were leaving and they may have just sort of tra were traveling together because it's safer that way to travel and and with, with more than one uh, people, but they were discussing things that had been taking place. And so they were um, discussing all of the different events. And then we begin to see as they begin to tell their story that within their hearts, there were probably unanswered questions. There were doubts and confusion and they were greatly distressed. Because once again, they lived in a time where there were no newspapers. Everything sort of traveled by word of mouth. There was no Twitter, there's no social media. And so when you sort of would see somebody, you would ask, did you hear about this? And they would say, yeah, did you hear about that? No, tell me about that. And so there was a great discussion of what was taking place. And so there are two men, they're on, they're on the road, and then they are discussing things. And so they're talking about things that had transpired. And once again, in verse 18, it says, the things that, has, that have happened. And so here we get to see Dr. Luke underscoring the fact that we're dealing with history. 
that we're dealing with literal history and not some kind of in invented story. Because there are those who are said that, well, these, these letters that were sort of written about a hundred years after the fact, and they're just stories to sort of cover what Jesus was, because there's some kind of gap between the Jesus, the actual Jesus of history, and the Jesus of the Christian faith. And we don't know too much about the Jesus of history, we just have all this history of the Christian faith. And so they're both not always working together all too well. But Luke tells us here that the Jesus of history is, to, is a faith because he is saying these are the events that has happened. And so I think that there, that is by no mistake. So in Luke's mind, there is no doubt that the Christ of history and the Jesus of faith are one and the same. And so we have here recorded what had happened and they're discussing those different events. Look at verse 21. We see the heart of what they were discussing. Verse 21 says, And they were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there was this buzz that they're saying that he's the Messiah. There were a lot of different messiahs, people claiming to be messiah, but he backed things up with these miracles. And they kept hearing miracle upon miracle that no matter where he went, things were happening. And then his followers were saying he's walking on water, he's common to see, and then they go to hear him, and he spoke like what no other man has ever spoken before. And so they thought that he's probably the one that God has promised. And so they were hoping that he was the promised one. The one that would be anointed by God to restore the temple, to restore the nation. But as we begin to see, they had an understanding of scripture, but they didn't have a full understanding of scripture. That is why that they had a hard time dealing with the death of Jesus that had taken place. They were looking so far down the road that they were expecting this great military leader. And all they got was a, a dead Messiah upon a cross. Because their theology had no place for a, a dead Messiah. They had no place in their understanding of God's word for a resurrection. And so it's not because they rejected Scripture. It is not because they ever they never read Scripture. And it's not even because they never went to synagogue because they, they heard Scripture being taught all the time. And it wasn't even that they didn't believe Scripture. But they only had a partial understanding, just like the disciples who are in Jesus' presence. And he said, I'm going to die. And it just never equated that until after he died, and rose again that he, that he needed to die. And so they only had a partial understanding of Scripture, which helps underscore that one never should stop studying. Because you may think you understand something, but you don't see the full picture. And you see this often when you share your, share your faith with someone. Because they want to make Jesus the Jesus of love. My Jesus loves everyone, is accepting of everyone. 
But they tend to forget that the Jesus of the Bible did cleanse the temples twice. He kicked them out. He was very firm and with the religious leaders, you know, call them vipers. Two whitewashed tombs with dead men bones. He, he was confrontive. And especially when he comes back again to judge, though he's loving, which he is, and though, um, though he's accepting, we have to accept how scripture presents him. So people can have a partial understanding, because God is a God of love. But he has to, he's also a God of holiness, as we saw in Isaiah 6. And so because he is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot simply pardon sin. And so because of that, he has to judge sin. And so not, not only is everyone sinner, as what Paul says in Romans 3, but man is even conceived in sin, so he's lost. He, even if he never, never sins, he's just condemned. And so when you look at an understanding of Scripture, you need to have a full understanding. That's why when you look at verse 17, it ends with, and they stood still looking sad. They were upset to the core, not knowing how to properly process all the different events, their understanding of what Scripture was saying, what Jesus' message was all about, and how to put that all together, because they were banking on a great God to work uh, mightily, and all they got was a dead leader of this movement, and there was nothing else coming about. And so when you look at verse 14, they were cut to the core. They were talking about all these things which had taken place. And so all these things were probably everything that took place probably in Jesus' ministry, but also uh, what has just taken place. Monday was a triumphal entry where hundreds, maybe thousands of people sort of converged and threw palm branches and hailed him as the son of David, as the king of the Jews. On Tuesday, he cleanses the temple. And then from the rest of the week, he just uh, was in the temple preaching. Um, he, then he gets arrested. There was a series of mock trials, which everyone who watched sort of knew that things were just not right. And then before Pilate, then the crucifixion with his death and burial. And so there are the things that they were talking about. And so the, um, they kept probably saying to uh, each other, how could all of this that had taken place be? What happened? How is Jesus now dead after all of those miracles, after all of his teaching? And then to be executed, not by the Romans, but to be executed by our religious leaders themselves. And so these men may have been in different places at different times through, uh, through the uh, Passover week. And so they were talking with one another. Did you see this? No, tell me about it. Or I was there, but I, I didn't hear that part. And so they were just discussing things. So asking questions that, uh, what happened during the crucifixion? 
Why, why did the sky go dark like nighttime for three hours? Why did Jesus, when he was nailed upon the cross, make those amazing statements as he hung on that cross? Why did the crowd choose Barabbas, who everyone knew was guilty, and not choose Jesus? Why did the thief, um, the other thief on the cross, why did Jesus tell him, today you will be with me in paradise? And now with the body gone, what, what did happen to, to that body? And so all of this was all probably swarming and filling their minds with, with trying to find answers, with all this confusion that nothing made sense. I want you to look at, um, uh, uh, go to Luke chapter 4, if you would. Because one of the things that they may have been talking about, one, it was one of the first times that Jesus is taught in the synagogue. Because in Jesus' ministry, he made these statements. And now that he was dead, how would it sort of all come together? In Luke chapter 4, look at verse 16 through verse 21. We find this, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, or the scroll of Isaiah. And he opened the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Now in verse 18, he's going to read it, read Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. Or proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20, closed the book, the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. None of the religious leaders ever would, ever would even think about saying that. But Isaiah, he lived about 700 years previous to this. He said, this portion of scripture has now been fulfilled, and he's implying, in me. Look at verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city. Why? Because he grew up there in Nazareth. You know, this guy, now, no. They got up, drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But I like this. But passing through their mist, he went on his way. He just, he just disappeared. He just sort of vanished. The crowd was so crowded. And whether or not it was a supernatural act or just he was able to, he went on his way. And so the fulfillment of that passage was proclaimed by Christ. But now that he's dead, how could it be the favorable year of the Lord? How could it be that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to anoint him anything because he was now dead? And so Jesus claimed to fulfill Scripture. He claimed to be the promised Messiah. They were looking for an earthly king. 
There's a difference there. Though he, he is going to be king, but he wasn't going to be king then because they were looking for a military leader to transform Israel, to defeat the Romans. They were looking for a deliverer. They were not looking for a savior. They believed that God would finally set up his kingdom and they would secretly break out their mega hats, not the MAGA hats, their mega hats to make Israel great again. And so they thought that they were there, but they had to put their hats away. And so now we come in verses 15 through 17. Now that we know something about the background of the two travelers, in verses 15 through 17, we're introduced to this interesting stranger. Let's begin at verse 15. We see this. While they were talking and discussing. The, word, uh, the Greek word they're talking means to talk. But discussing um, is more interesting because it means more intense. It, it, it's, you know how when you argue but you don't actually argue, you're, it's just very intense? That's, that's that word. So they were talking about things and if they were Italian, they, were, uh, they could get very loud when they start to get more discussing about things. And I'm sure they were talking calmly and then being intense in, in, in other areas. So while they were walking on their seven-mile journey, late in the day, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. So if you ever had any, any hiking experience and you tried to have an in-depth conversation, you don't necessarily walk all that fast. So Jesus sort of began to appear. And it would have been interesting that did he just sort of appear and start traveling or did he just come from a distance and got closer and closer? That's my mind's eye, but I, I don't know. And so he says, can I travel along? And they said, yeah. So he travels with them. So while in this deep conversation, they meet this stranger. And in verse 16, we find this. It's interesting because it says that, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So Dr. Luke is implying that if they saw Jesus before, they would recognize him, which means they probably saw Jesus in the past at some point. And so if you've seen any kind of public figure before, if you've seen him in person, you say, yeah, yeah, that's him. I, I, I would I'd recognize him anywhere. Same thing here. But it's interesting because some commentators, some liberal commentators, they sort of say that, well, they were walking west. And the sun, they, they sort of say Jesus was a good man. He had many great things to say. But yet there's no change in their life because God keeps them from recognizing him because they have no desire to know the true him. It's also interesting to see that when he does appear to them, it's not this glowing, angelic, where he has a, a halo, or he just looks like a normal, glorified person. No, not glorified, but a normal person. And so they tell him to come along. And so in verse, uh, in verse 17, Jesus begins to have a discussion with them. And Jesus' discussion with them is by a question. And it's always interesting to sort of talk to people by asking questions. Because if you ever share your faith, if you ask a question, you know exactly where, where they're at. 
And so Jesus asked them a question here. And Luke has 12 times in which Jesus begins teaching by asking a question. And look at verse 17. We see Jesus' question as he now has a discussion with them. He says, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And when they hear this, they're like dumbfounded. They like stop. And they look really sad because of the reality of what they were discussing begins to come out through their continents. Because these events were a great trauma to them of what had just transpired. And in verse 18, we see their response. He says, one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? It's sort of like a, if you ever go to a vacation town and say, oh, you must be a visitor because you're asking for directions or you just have a camera. You, you just look out of place. That's sort of the implication here. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and just, just don't have a clue and are unaware of the things which have happened in these days? And so it gives the impression that they were shocked because everybody knew. How could you not know? Not only is it the Passover to where you're highly involved with things, but everybody saw the crowds, uh, heard the things. And it's almost like them saying, are you living under a rock? Where have you been? And so everyone knew about the raising of Lazarus, about the triumphal entry and the proclaiming of the king of Israel. They all, even the Greeks, were seeking out Jesus to hear him. Those Gentiles wanted to hear him. And he was speaking to them as though as he was from God himself. And I like what verse 19, he sort of asked the second question. And he said to them, what things? <laughs> you know, haven't you heard the things? What things? And so I'm sure he sort of got them going. And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazareth. And it's interesting because now they go to begin to clarify who this Jesus was. You know, well, maybe you just don't know Jesus, but... He was a prophet, mighty indeed. What was that all about? He's, he's the one that done those miracles that everyone has been talking about for the last three and a half years. And mighty in word. He's the one that when he speaks, nobody speaks like him. He's mighty indeed, mighty in word, in the sight of God. Meaning, meaning everything he says sort of corresponds to, to the word of God and all the people. That Jesus, you haven't heard? And then in verse 20, that goes to the next step. So Jesus' life in, um, in ministry in the rise was one to where it was a, he was godly. He was being used by God in what he did and what he said and... What about our religious leaders and how the chief priests, verse 20, and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him? That Jesus, you haven't heard. It's interesting because you don't see the word Romans there, that the Romans delivered him up. It was our own religious leaders, our own scholars, our own people who run the temple, the people who are in the know, they killed him. 
then that always um, put their minds in a weird place because they should have known in, in their mind. Look what he did. Look what he said. And they didn't want him. And so the Romans weren't to blame. They were only the executors. It was our religious leaders that rejected him. Verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And so they were hoping that now's the time to make Israel great again. To be the one world power that God would finally set up his kingdom and rule the nations. And how people would come to Jerusalem to worship that he was the promised one. But now he's dead. That Jesus. You haven't heard anything. And it is now the third day. It's the third day. And so they tell Jesus the resurrection story. In verses 22 to 24. If you haven't heard, well, let me tell you what had taken place this morning. So they're going to tell the resurrection story from their perspective. Verse 22. But also some women among us amazed us. So they got up that morning and some women told us some stuff. And I was like, wow. What happened? When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was, what? He was alive. Verse 24, and some of them who were with us went to the tomb. That's, uh, that's John and Peter. And some of them, they went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women said, but they didn't see him. There's no body, and there's no life. There's no one alive. And so the angels appear. Jesus' body is gone. This is their resurrection story that God did raise him from the dead. And so they're trying to uh, wrestle with those facts and how that fits in. <laughs> he is not there, but he is alive. And so it seems like that they left Jerusalem before the events in John chapter 20, verses 11 through verse, uh, verse 18, where Mary Magdalene's account of seeing um, the risen body, because these were with the women, but there's a second, um, second set of Mary um, seeing, um, seeing the risen Christ. So they were there, they saw, now they, they left, and, and Jesus is going to tell the rest of the story in verses 25 through 27. He needs to clarify the story that they just said, because there's more to it than just that. And look what he says. He says to them, after hearing the excitement and emotion, seeing their pain, seeing their confusion, Oh, foolish men. So it is a rebuke, but it's going to be a not that harsh of a rebuke. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets has spoken. <laughs> he's, he's going to say, this is nothing new. The prophets spoke about this. You didn't study hard enough. You're, you're just slow to believe. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? 
And I love, this is why I love this section, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus is going to give them full disclosure. All right. Don't you know that I had to die? And so, so now he is going to pretty much recite the Old Testament in which he is mentioned. And so Jesus just didn't uh, repeat that he had to die. He had to show them. He had to show them that their understanding of, of Scripture was limited. Not that they rejected God's word or they, they just didn't, didn't um, know it well enough. So it's a my, uh, minor rebuke. And it's interesting because beginning in verse 27, he's going to give them a Bible study. Because the Bible is a book about Jesus from beginning to end. So if you go to the Old Testament, in every book of the Old Testament, there are pictures. There are types of Jesus. He is mentioned there. Jesus is his story. It's history. It's his story from cover to cover. You cannot get around the, the promised one who is going to come through his people and be the one that God has um, solidified his covenant with and make them a mighty nation. And so beginning, there's a threefold uh, fold breakdown that we have in verse 20, 27. He said, beginning with Moses, that's the, that's the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible. And then the prophets, those are the major prophets and the minor prophets. And then all the scripture, that's probably the historical books and the, pro, um, the poetic books. So through all of the rest of scripture, he begins to give them a Bible study. And this is one Bible study I would have loved just to sort of be a fly on the wall, would not you? Because we're not uh, given a list of passages here. But I'm sure they would have been amazed as Jesus began to recite the Old Testament. Did you not know that, no, I didn't know. I, I, I should have known. Because he probably would have began in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where the curse that God gives. But there's the first mention of the promised one. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put my enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. That's what uh, the evil one does to the Lord. But he shall bruise you on the heel. And so there's the first mention of the promised one. That was me all the way back then. He probably went through um, all of the different feasts and sacrifices that they have done. You know, all those, all those burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings, offerings. So he's going through the book of Leviticus. They were pictures of me. They were pictures of his provision and his character. The burnt offering shows that how, how Messiah would provide atonement and his sinless character. The grain offering shows that he would provide consecration and devotion to the Father. The peace offering 
shows that he would provide reconciliation and peace with God. The sin offering shows that he would provide a complete satisfaction from God's wrath. That was that propitiation aspect. That there would be a substitute. And the trespass offering would be one in which we would see his... Um, he would provide a way for repentance and a complete satisfaction for redemption. All those offerings that you had to do, they're pictures of me. He probably went through the burning bush. That was Christ in the burning bush. The Passover lamb, the unleavened bread. Even when God led Israel out of Egypt and there was the pillar of fire, the pillar of a cloud and the pillar of fire, that was Christ. The crossing of the Red Sea was Christ. The manna from heaven, the source of the living water, all of that was Christ. Not just that, think about the tabernacle and the temple. They're all pictures of Christ. How they had the high priest go in once a year to do sacrifices year after year. Well, Christ is the high priest. There was a once and for all sacrifice. It, it is done. All of the elements in the temple and tabernacle between the incense and the golden lampstands and the showbread and the bronze altar and um, in the Holy of Holies, you had the ark. They're all pictures of Christ. So he's going through the Old Testament. You know, you see, you see David, the king. There's going to be one, the promised one, who's going to be in the loins of David. David, the imperfect king, but he was most beloved by God. There's going to be the perfect king coming. All of that, he's probably laying out. And they're going, whoa, why didn't I see that? Why didn't I know that? And then he's probably going through passages within the Old Testament. Let me just read for you a passage from the Psalms. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. The psalmist writes, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow my, your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is full, fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. In Psalm 23, he probably had, you know, it talks about um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I am the great shepherd. And they would have went, yeah, I heard, yeah, I remember that now. Or even Isaiah chapter 53, that great suffering servant passage. How he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. How'd you miss that? It's there. They're looking for a deliverer and not a savior. Even in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, it has the 70 weeks and how in the first 62 weeks, it basically nails down the exact date in which Messiah would come in to the city of Jerusalem. You missed that. And so he went through all of Scripture, an amazing Bible study, because the Old Testament is there to give us pictures of Christ on how he would be the the promised one sent from God. And so it is the theme of the Old Testament, and he just basically walked through everything to help prove the veracity of the Old Testament. 
that is not just a made-up stories about some group of people and this happened and that happened. And it's just sort of a thrown together set of stories about lions and a lion's den and a fiery furnace and a floating accent. And no matter what you want to look, each story is there for a reason. Each story is there for a purpose. Each story has been chosen by God to reveal himself to us in the Christ of his son. And so he's walking through these things. Whether or not it was the bronze serpent of Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 through 9, which our Lord tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that he is the fulfillment of that. He's the son of man shall be lifted up. Or in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, talks about, I will raise up David, a righteous branch. And you can go through every single book within the Old Testament to show Christ on display. Because he, those things were a picture of the imperfect, of the shadow, and how he clear, clarifies that, that all those things are found in him. And so these two people on a dusty road on a Sunday afternoon with, with broken hearts, with all of their hopes smashed, they get an exposition of the Old Testament story of, of redemption that centers around the Messiah. From the beginning of the Old Testament to the end, he himself is on display. And that's something that I have to remind myself in the, when I read the Old Testament. It's more than just a story. You know, um, David before Goliath. You know, I need the courage like David. You know, I need to be strong, put my trust in God. David's story before Goliath is not to have more, uh, to have me to be more like David. You know, be more like David. Well, which David? The adulterer and murderer? Or David? You know, he's imperfect. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture how there will one day be one who would fulfill those things. That we can put our faith and trust in God, like David. And so, the Lord puts himself on display to them. And then lastly, in, in, in verse 28 through 35, we see the recognition of the risen Savior. Look at verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going further. And so they finally arrived, and he said, all right, I'll see you later. I'm going that way. And it's interesting because in verse 29, it says they urged him. That's another one that sort of loses its impact in the English. They just didn't suggest, why don't you have dinner with us? They strongly urged him. <laughs> You're not going nowhere. Come on. We, we, we want to we get you dinner. Stay with us. There's a strong, intense aspect to it. Stay with us, for it is getting evening, and the day is now nearly over. Because it's dangerous to travel at night. Come with us. We want to provide for you. And so they invited this stranger to be with them. That's key. Watch what happens. So, they went, so he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, and when he had reclined at the table, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and he began giving it to them. And so they asked the Lord to say a blessing. One commentator says this, how often does Jesus address us all on life's way, and he still desires to enter where he is invited? 
And so he's invited to come and to stay. And that's what happens when we come to take him as Savior. We need to invite him into our, into our lives when we see that only he is the one to, who can forgive sin. Only he is the one that can take the penalty that we, that we rightly deserve and uh, turn to him. And so Jesus stayed on because he was invited to stay on. So he does, and he blesses the meal. And look what takes place. Then in verse 31, and their eyes were opened, and then wham, they recognized him. I, I, I wish I could see what their faces were like. Wow. And realized the promised one, the son of God, it's you. And he vanished from, from their sight. Their eyes seen who he was. And that happens at the moment of salvation. We get to see who Jesus is in his full glory of he is the son of God. He is the one of who fulfills everything that he has promised. Because his job was done and he just disappears to show that he has power over life and death, that he is alive. And he has something else to do. So he came to open up the scriptures so that they would be able to see. And that he had to die and be raised again from the dead. And so now that he was alive, his job was over. And so now the questions probably poured into their mind. Look at, look at verse 32. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us? The, the, the minds were flowing as, as they were hearing him speak and teach. And they wanted to know more while he, while he was explaining the scripture to us. Verse 33, and they got up. And that very hour, they didn't stop. They returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven, which was probably hard to find, but they found them. And those who were with them. And verse 34, and the Lord has really risen, and saying the Lord had really risen and has appeared to Simon. So the disciples said, yes, the Lord is risen and he appeared to us. And in verse 35, they're going to say, he appeared to us too. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. And so they probably began to retail all of the passages in the Old Testament. He told us this beginning here, and he walked through Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures. Did you know that this verse was, was about him? Did you know that that's about him? Did you? And they probably went down because it was burning within their hearts because they seen him alive. And they had to share what had taken place. What a, what a tremendous passage this is. It's more than just an Easter passage. It's a passage to help teach us a number of different things. Because when you look at the person of Jesus, first of all, that Christ was who he said he was. Because either, when you look at the life of Jesus, either he was a, a, a liar... And he just made up things to prove that he was Messiah, which would make him a very bad person. Or he was a complete lunatic, 
or he was really Lord of all because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the promised one that God had promised, who had authority over life and authority over death. And so how do you see this risen Savior? Do you see him as who he claims to be? Have you turned your life to him as Savior? Do you come to God to say, well, I'm not that bad. I've done all this in church. I've given all this. I've attended all this. So God should be pleased with me. Or do you see yourself as a dirty, rotten sinner who is saved by the grace of God, who deserved to be judged because of his sin, but it was for Christ's death upon the cross that he paid my penalty. And if it wasn't for his grace, I would be just as lost. But he has made me alive in him, and now I have the assurance to have eternal life. So you're either on one side or the other side. You either see him for who he was or he claimed to be, or you're hoping that you hope one day to see him as he claimed to be. So you need to turn to him. Secondly, as we look at this passage, it verifies the veracity of Scripture. When you begin to look at his, uh, his Bible study that he went through on that road, and how long that must have taken, because sometimes they probably stopped and chat some more and went on their way. But it proves that, that Christ is found in the Old Testament. There are things for us to, to sort of go back there and to see how God has worked. And so it proves the veracity of Scripture. Thirdly, it shows the deep love that God has for us. God wants to make himself known. He's revealed himself into his word. And here he's revealed himself to these two other strangers that wanted to know but didn't know. And Christ decides to show himself to beyond the twelve and to beyond the women. To these two um, people going back who are now excited and I'm sure when they go back to Emmaus to say that he is risen and he's risen indeed for we have seen him and then lastly when we see the risen Christ it makes possible for us to have eternal life that is the message that we bring to a lost world. So it doesn't matter where really our society goes, though we care and, and, um, and we want things to be proper, it doesn't change the mission of the church to be ambassadors and proclaimers of Christ. To tell people, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So Christ is the risen Savior. And that is what we come to celebrate at the table, that he is risen he is risen indeed. He verifies scripture. He is there now um, to have us hold fast to the promises that he is close to us. He is imminent. He lives within our hearts. He has given us the, the Holy Spirit to empower us. And we celebrate that fact as we come to the table. 
And so now we're going to um, come to the table. And if you have not received our little pandemic little cup, just raise your hand and they will, they will sort, sort of come and to pass things out. Once again, this is a picture of Christ and what he has done. Because on the night before his death, he took a normal command by God to celebrate the Passover. And he likened it to himself. The bread representing his broken body, and then the cup to represent his spilt blood. And so as, as we sort of come to partake, let us bow our heads for, for a word to have the Lord speak to our hearts. Because we have seen in, in Luke the risen Savior. And that should make us want to leave this place differently than how we have entered these doors. So let's pray for, for a moment of silent prayer. And then I'll close and then we'll partake together. Father, we, we ponder the death that you had done upon the cross. And it is something that we celebrate every Lord's Day, not just once a year. And it is a remembrance that should put within our minds as we celebrate every week that we serve a risen Savior and He's in the world today. Father, Thank you that not only have you revealed yourself to us in your word, but also that word can transform our lives. And so, Father, as, as we come to partake to, to the bread and the cup, let us have our lives to be that living sacrifice presented before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. On that last night, he, he took the bread and he passed it to his disciples to represent his body that would be bruised and broken. And he told his disciples as they, part, as they partake to do this in remembrance of me. After they took the bread, they passed the cup. And Christ likened this to the blood that needed to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And now how he would be that Passover lamb. And so as they, as they partook, he told them to do this in remembrance.
And so as, before we go, we're going to sing one more song of praise and glory to our risen Savior.